This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, for the first time since the coronavirus pandemic started, Peace Corps volunteers are returning to service, and the agency is recruiting once again. And the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council is small and relatively young, but it's playing a big part in implementing the bipartisan infrastructure law and now the Inflation Reduction Act. And the war in Ukraine has stretched on for nearly half a year. It shows no signs of ending anytime soon. And the greatest test could still be yet to come. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. In 2020, the Peace Corps evacuated thousands of volunteers from all over the world. Now, more than two years later, volunteers are back serving communities. Carol Spahn is CEO of the Peace Corps. Carol, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So prior to the pandemic, uh, volunteers were in 64 countries around the world. Where are you right now? Well, we are very excited to be inviting volunteers back to 48 countries, and we have volunteers on the ground in 23 countries. Is there, what's the timeline for getting fully back up to where you were before the pandemic, or is that still the plan? Well, we would still love to get back to our pre-pandemic scope and the number of volunteers that we had in service, there's still considerable uncertainty around COVID and we are going back in a way that keeps volunteers safe. So we're going back gradually and a lot will depend on how the pandemic evolves in terms of when we get back up to our pre-pandemic scale. And how has the pandemic changed how the Peace Corps operates? Well, Again, clearly the safety and security of our volunteers and of the communities that we serve is of primary importance. So we have new safety and security protocols. Um, we have looked at our programming to see how we can program in a safe way. And we are looking to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted countries around the world and countries where Peace Corps serves. And so we will be part of that response and recovery effort. And that includes things like education and food security, as well as combating misinformation and disinformation around the vaccine. I was surprised to find out that your volunteers actually deployed in the United States to help with the COVID response. Yes, it was only the second time in history that we have done so, and we did so at the request of FEMA. So we had 158 volunteers out in four or five states around the United States. And it was terrific because their cross-cultural skills enabled them to reach communities in the United States that are underserved or may have been missed. And it was very exciting to see volunteers in my own backyard in Montgomery County. And they used those language skills. They used Swahili, Amharic, um, in addition to Spanish and French to really convey the importance of getting vaccinated. And it was important for people to have a trusted community member really there to help them through that effort. You know, the pandemic uh, forced all of us to become virtual and do things on, on Zoom and, and things like that. You, um, you piloted a, a virtual service uh, pilot. What, what's that about? Well, it's been very exciting to see that roll out. And it started really as a request from one of our host governments that said, please help us 
um, get information out there to our communities on social media and they asked for virtual support. So we stood up a program. We have people who are donating their time and really people who served in the Peace Corps from every prior decade of Peace Corps service. So people who originally served in the 60s and 70s are donating 10 to 15 hours a week and working with you know, communities that they um, you know, engaged with quite a long time ago. And, and for some who are more recent evacuees, they were really able to have some completion and, and really have that engagement. So are you uh, continuing that program? Are you going to be expanding it? Well, we are continuing the program. Um, we are determining if we can continue it in its current uh, configuration, um, you know, or if we move forward in a different way. But we think it's very important for volunteers to be able to serve in a variety of capacities. And some people aren't able to leave their home, their family, and commit to two years of service abroad. So we think it's a very important complement to our on-the-ground volunteer cohorts. You know, you volunteered for the Peace Corps many years ago. Tell us about your experience. Well, I volunteered alongside my husband as a small business volunteer in post-communist Romania. So it was four years after the fall of communism, which was a fascinating time in history. And I think about what's happening in the world now and you know how it's important to really meet the moment. And at that time, I grew up in the Cold War. We didn't know, you know, what was happening in, in a lot of those countries. And it was just a great gift to be able to go and live and work alongside the people of Romania. You know, it's, it's a very different world. Uh, as you just mentioned, since 1961, which when the, when the Peace Corps was established by President Kennedy, how has the Peace Corps changed and evolved over those many years? Well, you mentioned one of them, which was the, the virtual service, which was our, our most recent addition. We also have a program that's called Peace Corps Response, where people who have more advanced technical skills can volunteer for nine to 12 months. And we really do encourage that um, complement to our existing programs. You can imagine that all kinds of other things have changed. Two of the Peace Corps goals relate to cross-cultural exchange. And the ability to do that now on Zoom is just tremendous. We can have volunteers in communities, real live time, you know, conveying and working with um, schools here in the US. You know, there are a lot of young Americans who have a heart for service and who dream of helping others around the world, but they've got student loans. They can't afford to volunteer. What do you say to them? I say, come with us volunteer. There are a variety of programs for deferring those loans. Um, the student loan crisis is very real. I don't want to discount that in any way. Um, but Peace Corps can be a very important pathway to federal service. And it is truly transformational in terms of your um, career, your perspective. Um, it, it had that impact on me. I was an accountant before uh, joining the Peace Corps, and it changed my life. So it, it, is a, it is a big step, but one that's really important, especially to meet this moment. At what point is it too late to volunteer for the Peace Corps? It is never too late. Uh, when I was country director in Malawi, I had one of the oldest serving volunteers at the time. She was 82. She just contacted me. She wants to go back. Um, 
you can you can volunteer at any time. All right, Carol, thank you so much for your service and for coming in. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Coming up later on the program, we check in on the war in Ukraine. But first, a small federal agency is getting a multi-million dollar boost under the Inflation Reduction Act. We're talking with its executive director about where that money's going. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. On August 16th, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act. It's the country's largest investment in climate change. And it included in the legislation $350 million for the federal permitting improvement steering to make sure those green projects happen. Christine Harada is the council's executive director. Christine, nice to see you again. Likewise, thank you for having me. So the permitting council is still relatively new. It was just made a permanent agency in November. Remind us what the council does. Yes, uh, so we serve as a governing entity that works to ensure that all the federal environmental review and permitting of major infrastructure projects is predictable, that's transparent, it's accountable, and we help work with project sponsors and state agencies, local governments, tribal nations to ensure that everybody is coordinating and collaborating accordingly to ensure that we're delivering on the infrastructure agenda. So the Inflation Reduction Act uh, just gave a massive increase to the council's budget. Talk about how that money will be used. Yes, so we're very grateful for the funding um, and it's, I think, certainly a very much a validation of the, the need for developing infrastructure in this nation. Uh, some of the money will be used to help continue to assist our federal agencies, i.e. Uh, largely making sure that we are um, providing the funding to be able to support the agencies with staffing or whether it be on-demand services in the various regions for specific projects. Um, and some of the other funding will be used to help uh, provide more centralized tools, if you will. A lot of the capabilities uh, that the federal permitting agencies need in order to be able to do their jobs more efficiently. So whether that be more GIS or geographic information system, uh, mapping tools, digitization for workflow management or stakeholder engagement, um, a lot of those types of capabilities. And certainly last but not least, uh, providing assistance to state, local and tribal governments as well as they may need additional resources to be able to continue the work for environmental reviews and permitting at their levels. And so what challenges do you foresee, uh, Christine, in, in ramping up and in implementing all these changes? Well, certainly it is a very large jump uh, as for which, of course, we're very grateful. And I think, you know, the biggest challenge, of course, is ensuring that we are, number one, um, hiring the right staff. Uh, we have, we're fortunate to have a super high performing staff at the moment. We're looking to add a couple more folks on the team to ensure that we are not only supporting the agencies, you know, well from a permitting expertise perspective, but also ensuring good financial stewardship. I envision that a lot of the funding will end up going out to be transferred out to other federal agencies, state, local and tribal nations. And so in that regard, of course, ensuring that we've got the right CFO type skill set in house to be able to ensure that we're managing that appropriately. And about, do you know uh, at this point about how big of a staff that you're going to eventually ramp up to? Uh, we anticipate ramping up in total. The numbers still need to be finalized, right? We're still very much in planning mode, if you will, but anticipate adding about four more folks uh, onto the team uh, for a total of about 30. Um, it is not my vision to certainly build up my own empire. I envision using the vast majority, the significant majority of the funding towards actually implementing the infrastructure, environmental review and permitting processes. 
And the council coordinates so-called FAST 41 projects. What does that mean? Sure, FAST 41 projects are uh, those that are defined within our statute itself, but fundamentally they are very large, complicated infrastructure projects in now 18 categories. Uh, we used to be 12 categories, um, but on uh, Wednesday last week, the president signed um, a bill into law that added six new sectors for the FAST 41 program, largely in the uh, technology and advanced research and development fields. You have a permitting dashboard on your website. What kind of information um, about these projects do you make available to the public? Sure, so the public is able to visualize and see in real time the a couple of things about each of the projects. There's a basic overview, what the project is, where is it physically located, points of contact, who's the lead person at the federal agency, who's the lead person at the project sponsor uh, entity, um, as well as the what I call the, the, Gantt, the master Gantt chart, if you will, of the entire project, but it's fundamentally the permitting timetable. So you can see who's on first, what's on second, what are all the environmental reviews and authorizations that need to happen, what's the actual time frame for that, if there are delays, if there are activities that are pushing things out more to the right, if you will, uh, on the schedule, for what reasons, all of those reasons and uh, details are articulated on the dashboard to be able to provide that greater transparency as well as drives accountability uh, within the federal agencies that we work with. And for the first time this year, the agency released a strategic plan. What is your biggest goal for this coming year? My fundamental goal has long been to ensure that we are delivering on the president's infrastructure agenda, that it is real. We're very fortunate to now have uh, two very large pieces of legislation that have been passed that help accelerate and expedite uh, infrastructure investments in America, both of the bipartisan infrastructure law as well as the, with the Inflation Reduction Act, and we need to execute on that. So my job is to ensure that we're equipping the, my federal agencies with the appropriate resourcing, the skill set, and the tools that they need to be able to function uh, and do their jobs well and provide high quality and timely decisions. All right. Well, Christine, we'll check in with you again as, as this continues to roll out. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks so much. Coming up, when the war in Ukraine started, the country's capital city was expected to fall within days. But Ukraine has held on for the last six months. Next, we discuss what the road ahead could look like. Stay with us. It's been six months since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Millions of Ukrainians have fled the country. Thousands more have died. And Russia has captured and occupied parts of the country. Keith Darden is an associate professor in the School of International Service at American University. Keith, welcome to the program. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. This was not supposed to last this long. Are you surprised that the war has dragged on for six months? I'm surprised and I'm not surprised. I think this war could have gone one of two ways. It could have been a two-month war or a multi-year war. And I think it was pretty clear after the first few weeks that we were moving into that multi-year, long, protracted conflict scenario, uh, which is where we find ourselves now. Well, some analysts are saying that the war is at an operational standstill. Do you agree with that? I think that's right. I think that both forces are exhausted. Uh, so it's very difficult to mount uh, an offensive at this point with the forces that they have. So you have a lot of efforts to resupply on both sides and an artillery war that's designed to limit those resupply efforts. And so we're really moving into a 
uh, you know, a excruciatingly painful, long, exhausting conflict with very little territorial movement, kind of on the lines of World War One. Well, speaking of resupply, the recently the U.S. has pledged to send more anti-armor rounds, mine-resistant vehicles, and for the first time, drones. Do you think this will make a difference? I think it'll make a difference in limiting the Russian capacity sub to supply the front line. So I think it'll be very important for preventing further Russian offensives, particularly in the southern part of the country. In other words, I think it's going to make it very difficult for the Russians to reach Odessa and to take the city of Mykolaiv. Uh, if you, you know, those are long supply lines that are quite spread out. Uh, and if the Ukrainians can strike deeper into Russian territory uh, with switchblade drones or long distance, uh, very accurate artillery, it's going to make it very hard for the Russians to move anything forward to those front lines in a concentration that would allow them to, to take some territory again. So I do think it's very important. So another concern is the fighting at the nuclear power plant in Ukraine. It's, it's Europe's largest. Uh, both sides are accusing each other of you know, threatening nuclear terrorism. What, what's your assessment of what's going on there? That one's a little bit hard to unpack. I think one of the key features of warfare is always the manipulation of information, and both sides are doing that quite a bit. I think the Russians control that nuclear power plant, so the likelihood that they are shelling that nuclear power plant is, uh, let's just say it's remote. I don't think they're shelling their own positions. But they are using it as a kind of shield from which to attack Ukrainian forces on the other side of the Dnieper River. Uh, so Energodar, the nuclear power plant, is located in a very strategic location uh, on one side of that river. And so if the Russians can shell Ukrainian forces uh, and protect themselves from Ukrainian strikes, the nuclear power plant provides a kind of human shield or nuclear shield for them. Uh, and the Ukrainians obviously don't want to let them do that. Uh, so they're shelling very close to that nuclear power plant. It's very dangerous. There has always been calls for negotiations between the two sides. Is there a diplomatic solution? And, and is that possible at this point? There's not a diplomatic solution now because both sides believe that they can do better than they're currently doing. Uh, the Ukrainians believe that they can slowly shut down and take away Russian uh, capability uh, to move forward. And just like the Russians retreated around Kiev, uh, they think that they might get the Russians to retreat in the south and east of the country if they don't feel like they can protect those forces and supply those forces, they might just pull them back. And so I do think that, and the Russians are committed to this for the long term. Uh, this is a very important fight for them. Uh, they put a lot of weight uh, on the importance of incorporating these parts of Ukraine uh, and overthrowing the Kiev government, and they have not backed off that for one for one minute. You know, there was an expectation that economic sanctions against Russia would would have forced Putin to change his calculus. What impact do you think they've had, if any? I think they have a a long range impact. So if it diminishes the Russian capability to produce you know accurate long-range strike capabilities like you know some of their missiles are being depleted uh if they're not able to get semiconductors uh because access to that is now restricted through sanctions that's going to limit their capacity long term but i think you know the russians are pretty well situated for siege warfare which is essentially what the sanctions regime is trying to close them off from the world economy uh but the world economy needs their oil it needs their gas uh, and 
it's likely that they're going to find ways to get in the equipment and the technology that is currently being sanctioned, either through China, through Georgia, or through some of these other partners that are less, less obvious and less openly on the radar. And Keith, I know you've studied that area for a long time. So I wonder what you can tell us about Ukraine's history that would have predicted how this war has played out. Actually, in some ways, Ukraine's history would have led us to think that this war would have been that two-month successful victory for, for the Russians. You know, sort of Kiev and Moscow were part of the same country for uh, close to 300 years before 1991, and that country wasn't called Ukraine. It was called Russia so uh, or the Soviet Union. And so there's a lot of history of Russian control of this region. Uh, and there were close cultural and political ties to Russia, certainly before 2014. And so, you know, you could see why the Russians might think that this would go well. But, uh, you know, since 2014 and even during the Soviet Union, there was the development of a strong Ukrainian sense of national identity. Uh, the war in 2014 to the present has mobilized the Ukrainian population and made them more resilient, more willing to fight. And so I, I do think that we've learned that national identity can come late uh, and be very resilient uh, in cases like Ukraine. So we don't have to go back to Kiev and Rus to think about why the Ukrainians are resisting. A lot of it has to do with changes that they've made in the last 10 years. All right. Well, Keith, thanks so much for being on the program. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.